following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. Good morning. You are listening to Zena Richardson and Scotty Foster, your host today with Behind the Lines on 2XX Community Radio 98.3 FM in Canberra. Uh, today we are going to be talking about designing and growing organic verge and community gardens in Canberra. There's a lovely quote from Simon Pauley from Sustainable Outdoors who says, you can always tell when an area has a strong community base by looking at how well loved their verges are. So as suburban backyards shrink and green space becomes a premium, even as we're encouraged to grow, to compost and to reduce waste, it makes no sense to keep nature strips as no-go zones, to insist on watering hungry strips of lawn with much of the runoff ending up in the stormwater system. The response has been a virgin community garden revolution, especially since COVID with a huge renewed interest in gardening. It's one of those areas that is now capturing the public's imagination and we're starting to see more and more street virgin community gardens appearing. Many of them are growing food. So joining us this morning via phone to chat about transforming your verge and creating community gardens are Keith Coles from Canberra City Farm and Peter Waddell from Canberra Organic Growers. Welcome to the show, uh, Keith and Peter. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Thanks, Dana. Yeah. So uh, we might start with a little bit of an intro um, for you two and about City Farm and uh, Canberra Organic Growers. I know that we've had City Farm on the show a few times, but we might have some new listeners this morning who aren't familiar. So Keith, could you start perhaps giving us a, a little bit of an intro to your background and how you got involved with Canberra City Farm and, and what Canberra City Farm is? Okay, well, I I, was, I used to be in Peter's position uh, for many years at the Canberra Organic Growers Society, and we were looking around to do something slightly different uh, with um, community gardens, and we came up with this concept of the Canberra City Farm, and that was in, uh, I think, 2011 we started that. And um, the idea of the Canberra City Farm is to, uh, it's basically educational, but we do, uh, it's to show people how to grow, gar- how to grow their own food. So we, we're trying, what we'd really like to um, get developed in, around Canberra, not only in Canberra, but in the surrounding region, is a local food economy that's sort of more vibrant than it is at the moment. So one of the things you've got to do is get people who are interested and capable of growing their own food, whether it's from, you know, on a balcony, whether it's in a backyard, or whether it's a market garden, actually a commercial market garden, because we're we don't have a lot of commercial market gardens. So we set up the Canberra City Farm to try to encourage that sort of activity. Um, so it's largely largely educational, but it's more than that. We also um, welcome uh, uh, refugee groups, uh, any disadvantaged groups to take up. We've got a few allotments of ourselves, uh, ourselves that are very much like um, uh, Canberra Organic Growers Society, but on a much smaller scale. We um, we run quite a few courses and workshops on how to grow stuff. Um, some of the CIT Solutions gardening courses are hosted by Canberra City Farm as well. So there's a lot of activity going on. Um, and the, uh, uh, yeah, we got you. Yeah, there's a lot of activity going on. And um, so it's that's basically what the Canberra City Farm is about. Um, we, um, 
We're thinking of starting up a, a, a new sort of educational uh, venture, I suppose you'd call it, which is for people who, particularly younger people, um, because a lot of our members are sort of in the older age bracket, so if we can get younger people in who really would be sort of interested in exploring the idea of doing market gardening, so we can take people. We actually have some market gardeners at the city farm at the moment, and but we would, ta- as an educational thing, we would take them through the process of you know, how to grow things, of course, but also scheduling, marketing, all that sort of stuff that goes with a successful. Um, market garden. So they're the sort of things that we, um, we're we focusing on at the moment. Fantastic. And being in the city, where are you in the city? Where are you? Oh, located? we're at two, two Dairy Road Fish Week. Wonderful. And so if, you, if you've been working hard in the garden, you get very, very thirsty, you can just go to one Dairy Road where Capital Brewing is. Right. That was a really, really smart move, wasn't it? It was. <laughs> All planned. Yeah. Um, thanks, so thank you, Keith. And um, Peter, would you like to tell us a little bit about uh, your involvement with Canberra Organic Growers and, and about who Canberra Organic Growers are and the community gardens you have? <laughs> oh, yes, certainly. Look, Canberra Organic Growers are... Uh, enthusiastic gardeners based using organic principles in a, over t- uh, 12 gardens in Canberra. We have, respo- uh, we have responsibility for running these gardens on leased land from ACT government. We have um, uh, eight, uh, eight of those gardens leased from ACT government plus two leased from ACT education and we have one cha- uh, church based uh, group that uh, we lease land with and uh, the gardens are basically divided up into plots. We have a central administration for running our gardens, central accounting system, <clears throat> and of course, uh, particular rules for uh, particular rules for organic gardening, mm. which means obviously no use of the, the non-use of herbicides, mm. pesticides, mm. and inorganic fertilizers. Mm, wonderful. So, so uh, Peter, why is it that you want to use organic methods? Sorry? Uh, why is it that you want to use organic methods? Well, um, <clears throat> I think there's uh, over the the the, 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 the Canberra organic growers have been going since the late 70s, uh, led by, uh, by uh, a lady called Betty Cornhill, who initiated the first garden and developed with her cohort of, you know, keen gardeners, uh, a means of uh, growing food without the use of the, you know, of of harmful chemicals, basically, and to use a more biodynamic principles uh, in their gardening and in the growing of food. And that's developed, obviously, over the last uh, 20, 30 years, it's developed worldwide into quite a, into a very strong movement. And, you know, uh, people are very attracted these days to the, you know, to be able to grow food, to grow their vegetables, without the use of uh, artificial means mm-hmm. and often very harmful uh, chemicals being brought into the garden mm. which linger in the which linger in the soil and uh, you know and are not easily sort of leached away mm. yeah absolutely so besides the the I guess that's the definition of what it's not and what are you what else is organic uh, agriculture actually doing or organic growing well in in our context we we're, we're basically uh, like uh, an allotment uh, society, we 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 have land uh, lands divided up into uh, into into various sized plots, 
and people who join the, the Organic Growers Society are able to uh, join a garden and, and lease a plot. And for, that, for, their, for their lease, they get the water uh, provided, and, uh, which they have to pay for, of course. Uh, they pay for a certain, um, uh, a certain amount per square meter. And they're really at liberty to, to develop their, their vegetable gardening and their community uh, input, too, into developing a garden. And so it's, it's a very strong sort of movement and very jealously held here in Canberra. It's uh, quite at the moment quite difficult to get a plot because of the renewed interest, which you mentioned earlier, in gardening and growing food. Yes, and um, you know, just Scotty and I are going to tag Tim here, gentlemen, so if you hear different voices coming across, um, that's what's happening. Um, so, Peter, um, as you said, it's difficult to get an allotment right now, and there is a waiting list because you know there's so many keen gardeners, and even more so after COVID. Yeah. Um, I did hear there were some grants available for starting new gardens, which might yeah, increase the is... number of gardens we have. Mm. I think the, the ACD <coughs> government over the past few mm-hmm. years has been uh, targeting, you know, the um, uh, the new development areas in Canberra. It's also been developing the, the the apartment or the unit blocks, and has been encouraging people within these uh, these areas to to apply for grants to help establish gardens. And um, it's been quite, it's become quite competitive to get a grant. Mm. And there's only a small amount, relatively small amount of money made available in these uh, garden grants. Mm-hmm. And we had the sustainable housing um, folks on a few weeks back, and which is a big part of their model is is creating a you know community garden within the yeah. housing community model. So I'm thinking yeah. you know that's what you're encouraging. It's not just a suburban community; it could be a street community. It could be um, you know a flat yeah. block of block of flats having their own community garden. So yeah. it can it can be as large or as small <coughs> as you can imagine. I think there will be quite different you know models being used, and if you go around the country here. And, and overseas, you see very, you know, a, a large number of different models being used in community gardens. The COGS are the COGS or the R of the Canberra Organic Growers. Really, really have an, an allotment system which is very similar to what happens in UK, etc. And you know, where where the the um, the actual garden is possibly a little bit out of the way, not that easy to 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 get to like i'm the convener of the cook garden which is on you know in Doobie street but you need you need transport to get to it um to carry your bags of soil yeah it's a bit long long yeah. long hike in the wheelbarrow yeah and it's got all these sorts of difficulties mm-hmm. so but and uh <coughs> it's interesting because it's what it's the garden that keith keith actually <laughs> developed in about 2001 so mm-hmm. we're uh, very grateful for all the work of Keith and his uh, and his mates did in uh, around about that time. They established a very good garden, good watering system. The irrigation system is very good, and you know the basic foundations were put in. Uh, obviously, with government help too, in mm-hmm. terms of you know helping with fencing and etc. Mm-hmm. So, what would be your old, difficult old... Model. Sorry, Peter, go ahead. It's a difficult model because mm-hmm. it's not actually where people live. It's not actually in the you know. Uh, it, the access is quite difficult. It's, it's mm-hmm. difficult for probably disabled people to use mm-hmm. too because of, you know, it's, it's in bushland really. Mm-hmm. And um, it has, it's got difficulties that way. The community grants, I think, are developing, you know, um, uh, 
access to to uh, available land in in areas where which is much closer to to the centres of population, much closer to the people, basically. Mm, so it could be like on an unused block on a street. That's could be, yeah. I, and I'm I'm personally not quite up to what's. I know there's been recent changes in legislation, mm. what you can do and what you can't do. I'm just not up with it. But uh, it's not really at the moment part of our. You know, of our the Canberra or Cogs's uh, mm. uh, pathway at the moment, mm. but we're always uh, happy to listen and you know mm. and help people develop you know their organic practices. And for them to come and look at your gardens and maybe get some great ideas on, on oh, yes, beginning yep, yep. and designing and that sort of thing. Yeah, we have a wonderful bunch of uh, conveners. Each garden's <laughs> got a convener who's you know, a manager, basically who uh, manages that particular garden, and they're always welc- uh, welcoming you know visitors. <laughs> Been, 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 it's been difficult in the last few, uh, last couple of months with the COVID uh, uh, health emergency. But as that as that eases, I'm sure we'll be able to accommodate, you know, people mm. to come and come and visit and see what we're doing. Now, do people um, who want to look at the gardens do they have to get in touch before they come out, or can they just be strolling along and having a look? Uh, we sometimes get. At the moment, we don't want people just strolling into the garden, obviously for obvious reasons, mm. and we've got notices up, uh, you know, restricting uh, the access mm. just to our gardeners, just because of the protocols involved in the uh, in this virus. Mm. But normally, in normal circumstances. Yeah, we we happily uh, people do come in off the off the street and come and say hello. They obviously are most welcome to to make appointments just to say you know when are you going to be there? You know I'll come down. We have open days on you know gardens have open days. You know we we have been part of the you know joined in the Canberra Open Garden. Um, program so there's quite a few opportunities so so when life is a little bit less restricted there's going to be lots of opportunities for people to come and have yeah, a look and, yeah. I th- and it's probably one of the things that we should be doing a lot more of <laughs> given the, the renewed interest in gardening mm. and we would be looking to perhaps hopefully uh expand our sort of community outreach <laughs> Mm, that's a great idea. Now, Keith, if I can switch back to you, because, you know, something Peter touched on here was accessibility um, being an issue for people to get to the community gardens because they're not centralised. And this is where the idea of, of having verge gardens or verge community gardens would be a fabulous solution to that. So I know that you've been involved in sort of the verge garden incentive. Would you better give us a, a little bit of an idea of what a verge garden is or what it could be? Well, a verge garden is just a garden on the nature strip. Um, as you know, we've got rules in the ACT, um, you know, that, that strip of land between the road and your block, um, that's the verge, I guess, or the nature strip. And there are fairly strict rules, but they're uh, about what, you, what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. Um, there is a little publication that they've put out, the ACT government's put out, and it's called Your Nature Strip Guidelines for the Use of Residential Nature Strips, which, um, because what used to happen, people did bird gardening anyway, whether they're rules or not. Yeah, you um, can't stop people gardening. That's right. <laughs> so what, they, they, what they've done is sort of codified uh, what the rules are, what the acceptable rules are, is basically what they've done. And there's, that's available on the uh, City Services uh, website. You just go into Access Canberra and type in uh, Nature Strip Gardens and it'll pop up. Mm-hmm. It's about a, a little... Well, it's... They got a bit carried away. There's 30 pages, but um, of rules. But um, was that a Shane Rattenbury uh, exercise? 
probably was actually. I think that was initiated by the Greens, but I'm not absolutely certain about that. Yeah, um, 30 pages of rules, it sounded like they had to do some negotiations. <laughs> oh, lots of, lots of, lots of <laughs> negotiations. Because there are people who are very anti-Birch Gardens. Um, so, yes, and with, with all these things where you're working in gardens in public spaces, you've got to be prepared to negotiate. Mm. With the with neighbours, with um, people who are a bit anti, and try and get them on side um, because there's no point in sort of having battles over these things. These are supposed to be, you know, it's a community activity. Mm. Uh, well, it can, it doesn't have to be a community activity, but it works better if it is. And the general rules are: you can't grow anything higher than fifty centimetres. Um, that's for or vision for, for the road. Yeah, so no so, tomatoes, yeah. no beans on climbers, that sort of thing. Well, you just chop them off at 50 <laughs> centimetres, I guess. <laughs> What's that, Esplardier? Esplardier, your tomatoes, grow them sideways. But, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, bush, um, a bush beans would be fine. Mm-hmm. But anything that's above 50 centimetres, you're not supposed to grow that close to the road. You're not supposed, I think, the other another rule is you can't grow stuff uh, within 1.5 meters of the, you know, the um, mm, the clearance uh, zone. The, yeah. the yeah, the that's so people can open their car doors when they pass. And another rule is if there's a footpath, not all we out at the front of my place, we don't actually have a footpath, not a formal concrete footpath. But if there is a formal concrete footpath, the idea is you don't go any closer than 50 centimetres to that footpath. You don't grow stuff any closer than that. There are also rules about the government trees. Um, You're not supposed to do any digging under the drip line of a government tree. Um, But other than that... um, you can you can either grow ornamental stuff, uh, native grasses, or you can grow food gardens, whatever whatever you like. And mm. it does actually make the streets look much nicer yes. uh, rather than just having your desert with lots yeah, of cars. Yeah, a lot of people are reluctant to water their nature strips too because you know it's expensive That's, and it's not you know an area that they use, so they tend to let That's it go. right. Yeah. Um, that has been a bit of an issue about. Um, uh, yeah, because water costs you money and it's getting more and more expensive. So some people, uh, because it's, that's actually, strictly speaking, government land, that's not part of your lease. So a lot of people object to watering that. But on the other hand, if you're getting the benefit from from that garden, well, maybe you might think it's worth watering it and yeah. keeping it looking mm-hmm. good. So it, it will vary from person to person. So there there is... Um, uh, yeah, quite a movement, and a lot of people do grow food on the uh, on the nature strip, um, and it's a perfectly reasonable place to grow your food. Uh, the only thing you need to watch out for is you know dogs leaving a mess and cats and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So you might need to wash your uh, produce just to just to make sure it's okay. Yeah, and people have mentioned too, if you're in a a high traffic zone, that maybe the exhaust from vehicles being absorbed into um, veggies probably isn't ideal. It's probably not ideal, but now that we have unleaded petrol, um, generally most people use unleaded petrol, the lead problem is not quite such a problem. Uh, where, where my daughter lives in Sydney, the lead levels in the, in the soil there are just horrendous. You, would never, you wouldn't let little kids play in the mm-hmm. soil. Whereas here, I think everything's pretty clean, really, and um, I think the... The uh, we don't have high lead levels, but for pe- for people who are concerned about that, you can actually get your soil tested, 
and uh, just to reassure yourself that the the soil is fine. But generally speaking, it is. And mm. even fine. if it was, if it was uh, contaminated, would you still be able to do a raised bed sort of system? You could do raised beds. If, oh well, there's, there's some rules about raised beds. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anything that's likely to be a trip hazard that people are likely to trip over, uh, like little um, retaining walls and things like that, are a bit of a no-no. There is, I can't remember what the exact height. There is a height uh, stipulated in the guidelines. Uh, just off the top of my head, I can't remember what it is, but it's pretty low. Um, so it would be more difficult to do uh, raised beds on the nature strip. Um, but that's one way of doing it um and yeah so um but i think it's i'm not sure on the nature strip it would be particularly practical you're not supposed to put boulders and things mm-hmm. on the nature strip and you're not supposed to do bollards there's a there's a whole string of rules mm-hmm. or things like all rules yes. you're not supposed to do <laughs> and i imagine you know if not not all our listeners are from the act so sometimes they have a, a different city council who's got a different oh, approach that's um, right yeah so different it places. varies right it varies from council yeah. to council and some are different. more flexible and some are less so that's right. Different yeah. places, different rules, and also changes of the staff as the staff changes, in, in particular in, in, in sort of local government. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some people are very zealous about applying the rules, other people just look mm-hmm. the other way. So it really depends on where you live. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but in the ACT, we have the same rules all yeah. over. And I saw there was, um, when I was doing a bit of research for the show, I saw that there was an issue on the Sunshine Coast where apparently they cut down 18 mature. Um, food trees planted by Butterham residents who were trying to create an urban food street and the city council was opposed to that, didn't really like it. There had been some complaints. Um, So they just went down and and chopped all the trees down and um, apparently they insisted that locals obtain a permit and take out insurance and anyone who didn't take out insurance lost their trees. Uh, And then you had in contrast to that, you had in Bayswater in Western Australia, the council was really pro creating um, local food forest and they were encouraging people (laughs) to, to plant their verges and create urban food sources. Yeah, there's, so. there's a lot of variation and I think that just points to the importance of negotiating. You know, if you've got, if you live in a council area where they're a bit anti, well, you need to go, first of all, to, you need, well, there's just the two approaches you always use, you go through the bureaucratic system and the political system, mm-hmm. um, go and talk to the guys that who who control these rules and see if you can talk them around or at least soften them up a bit and then uh, then talk to the people who are elected because they're the ones that are going to lose their job if people get really upset. Mm. Um, so there's a lot... It, it's sometimes a good idea to do uh, quite a bit of... I know it's a slow and a tedious process, but sometimes you just do need to negotiate, get your neighbours on side, get the community on side. And if the community's on side, it then becomes quite difficult for the council to do anything about it. Mm. Mm, I know in some places where there is a hostile council, like a really yeah. hostile council, there's a concept of guerrilla gardening that's uh, that's been spreading yeah. across the world. Mm. Yeah, yeah guerrilla gardening there for a while before... Uh, before uh, there was a stage when um, all just about all councils were very anti this. They wanted to control everything. So that's where guerrilla gardening got a, a real burst on for a while. And I think in response to that, some councils and here in the ACT government as well, um, they've decided to develop 
guidelines so you could sort of keep it a, a little bit so they could keep it a little bit under control but let people um, sort of have their verge gardens but within reason so that well I think I think the guerrilla gardening movement actually did a lot of good yeah, yeah, I mean, it would go yeah. as far as closing off a, a through road into two separate cul-de-sacs and then <coughs> digging up the tar to plant gardens and things. <laughs> well, I know a council down in Sydney near where my daughter lives. Uh, their approach was, um, and this was extreme gorilla gardening, um, they hired a whole lot of jackhammers and they just dug up all the concrete footpaths <laughs> in, a particular, in a particular area planted it all up and then contacted the council and said, come down and have a look what we've done, <laughs> which I thought was an extremely brave thing to do. But yeah. anyway, that's what they did. And as it turned out, the council said, oh, this is great. We'll have to have more of these. Yeah, nice, nice. And um, it worked really well. But I wouldn't, gar- I wouldn't sort of recommend it as a, as a general approach. Maybe uh, not in camera. In- <laughs> I guess it's a, bit, it's a bit risky, isn't it? But uh, the old saying, what is it? Uh, if you want a politician to lead, then you form a parade and they'll make their way to the front. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. And, you know, also I think we've got um, just a real sense of, like you said, fostering community. So people often are resistant to change and when they don't really know what that change is going to look like or how it's going to impact them. You know, there's been a lot of great community projects that had initial opposition from neighbourhood members, you know, the NIMBY group, and once they understood what it was really going to be about and how it was going to benefit them as well as the community, um, they were a lot more open to new ideas. So as you said, it's about, you know, communication, going and talking to your neighbours, getting their input and ideas, you know, just trying to get a sense of um, how much community interest there is in in creating something like that. Yeah, that's really important. And in fact, um, Peter will know some of the gardens we built in the uh, Canberra Organic Growers Society, we got quite a bit of community opposition for some of those. Um, because what people say, well, that's public land and you're putting a fence around it and you're using it for private purposes. Mm-hmm. You could tour an allotment garden. And so that you have to do quite a lot of negotiation to get people to understand why it's being done and they can come and join the garden if they like. So you invite them along. So there's... Um, yeah, negotiation, I think, is the key to making all this work. Yeah. The other thing which I thought came, the one good part of the COVID-19 problem that we've had is while we were all locked down, I I, I've, I do other people's gardens, but I get very, don't have much time to do my own and it's a terrible <laughs> mess out in front. So uh, as I was locked well, you're, yeah. you're rewilding your garden right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's a good spray, yeah. Um, <laughs> While while we were locked down here, we've decided to do up the front garden. And the number of people that walk past and have a bit of a chat and people I'd never met before who turned out to be my neighbours and things like that, it started to actually build quite a good community. Mm -hmm. So there was a positive that came out of it, particularly for people who were pottering around out in the garden. Mm -hmm. Lots of people come up and ask you what you're doing and what you're growing. And I thought it was a a really one of the positive things that came out of of being locked down. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Now, um, I hadn't mentioned in the beginning of the show that unfortunately Peter can't stay with us the whole show. He's only uh, going to be with us till um, quarter to ten today. So I'd like to give him a chance to pop in there and, and maybe share a bit about some of the challenges that um, you faced creating the community gardens in Canberra. Peter, are you there? Yes, yeah, <laughs> I'm here. I was just trying to, trying to switch between listening and 
uh, on the phone. Um, yeah, the, you, the challenges facing a community garden. Well, it's quite interesting because um, at the moment we're being included in some discussions around uh, Canberra by ACD government mm -hmm. and and by developers about the development of community mm -hmm. gardens, and we've sort of realised that we've. Um, Although we've got this vast experience over the since the the late seventies about running community gardens, uh, the the current group of administrators in Cogs, the volunteers, don't have much experience in actually setting up community gardens. Mm -hmm. That was all done by Keith and his, and his ilk, you know, you know, fifteen twenty years ago. So currently, we're now looking at thinking about trying to to write a, a, a how-to guide, how to set up a community garden, and it will be sort of looking at um, uh, how we actually go about, you know, dealing with government. Somebody's got an idea about a community garden. What do we do next? Yeah. We also, you know, there's also the point that government comes to us. Or, you know, developers come to us asking us about what do we do. So there's a bit of sharing to go on there in terms of how do we set something up. Wow. So that must present really quite an opportunity mm. for you because the, well, the well, older gardens do have their limitations mm. and they they yeah. were, I guess, a result of what Keith was saying, of the mm. negotiations at the time. And I yeah. guess the, the social technology of community gardens was at a certain stage. But mm. now throughout yeah, the world, it's a lot more well, accepted you know. and stuff. Yeah, go on. Yeah. They, they, Keith and you know, and subsequent uh, um, um, developers of, ga of, of, of our organisation have done a fantastic job in yes. setting it up. But now we need to sort of develop that further. And on foot, because we're a volunteer organisation, we and we're getting older too. It's becoming harder and harder to 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 find people within our organisation that have got the time and the physical capacity to to do all this. And that's something that we're gra grappling with. And I, I suspect that many uh, volunteer organisations, you know, face the same, the same sort of problem. It's about how do we get sort of dynamic people as they're getting older into retirement, being able to give enough time to do all this kind of work, this good work that we should be doing. But having had a couple of discussions this last, over this last couple of weeks, you know, it's quite apparent that, we, you know, we, we, we are a valuable resource for for government, we need to help them, who uh, and the developers. We need to help them, sort of, and encourage them to actually stick to setting up these community gardens. And they've got to do, as Keith said, by a lot of community cons consultation. You've got to find your champions in the community who are going to carry it forward. Very much like what Keith and Company did, you know, 20 years ago. We've got to really sort of. Tr survey the community mm -hmm. to see what they really want mm. people just think they want a garden but they're not quite sure about how it might what it might look like how it would work etc so that's what we're yeah a lot of people moving into um buildings you know that are um, high density that maybe don't yes. have a garden space or even have space for a community garden maybe they've only got a balcony or they've, think, they've got very limited you know green space and i think the developers government are genuinely interested mm. in doing it but of course the they generally sometimes it come, becomes an afterthought, and the you know the community garden is given the worst bit of space that's possible. <laughs> yeah, On and I saw last week. We, you know, we went to visit you know with a lovely group of uh, people out in Gungarland looking at setting up a, uh, a community garden. You know, AC gov uh, government, and they had, you know, they've got really good intentions, and they've got quite a difficult site to work with. 
you know, which which they've allocated as potentially a, a community garden. But it's going to need a lot of community support and community energy to actually develop it. Mm. Now you had, the to, other, had to retire one of your gardens, didn't you? One of the older gardens? I, well, we're full. No, I mean, there was a, there's a garden that's inactive right now that it's actually not... Sorry? Uh, you have a garden that's inactive, or am I incorrect? There was one that's there not is, operational? Uh, there is an office garden out in, out in Tugrong, depths of Tugrong, that's not operating anymore, but that's been subsumed by government now. And, oh, okay. uh, but everyone else is... We're, we're thriving at the mm-hmm, moment in mm-hmm. terms of, uh, uh, you, know, uh, you know, our gardeners. Mm-hmm. So perhaps, you know, as we chatted just briefly in the beginning of the show that maybe the next step forward might be partnering with some of these in, um, sustainable housing communities or sustainable affordable housing communities who are very much yeah. interested in having community gardens and their whole mm. model is community centric so yeah. you know, you've already got people and, and people of a real mixed age range from mm. you know sort of young adults yeah. and, and young parents with young children um, through yeah. through to um, you know people who are post retirement but, but one of the problems is the actual cost of the infrastructure um and i know you could do uh, we, you, you talked a little bit earlier about guerrilla gardening you could go to a vacant bit of land that's not being used in your suburb and maybe just start but the actual cost of uh you know getting water to a to an area of getting um you know security by um you know from feral animals etc and also you know the neighborhood you know often in the neighborhood you you know we still suffer a lot of break-ins in our in our gardens, you know, just heavy theft and yes. a bit of foraging and all that sort of thing. So there's a bit of vandalism, and that sort of thing yeah, happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even mm. in the isolated areas we do. Mm. And that's always very disheartening. Mm. So the cost of setup there of actually once you've – you might have a water point to a, to a garden area, but then you've got to do, dig the irrigation. Mm. You've got to put in the irrigation pipe and you've mm-hmm. got to make – water accessible to plots, Mm -hmm. then you've got to fence it. And Mm -hmm. these are quite significant costs. Mm -hmm. Keith and company years ago did it by, you know, did it themselves. I don't think at the moment that, you know, given the the age profile of our members that we could do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in in the community, in a a local community, people, you know, there should be enough people that, um, you know, we're looking for champions that are going to take it on and develop it, basically. So all those people who don't have garden space but really want to get involved, they're the people yeah. that you want to get in, you know, get in touch think, with right now. And what we're finding is, I think, well, look, look, I'm a retired teacher. Um, I think over the years, people's um, work lives have actually, it, the work life has changed a lot. I don't think people, young people with their families and all their commitments have as much spare time as they used to have outside of work. I think the working their working time has increased dramatically. Hmm. Well, this is where we're so, hoping something positive yeah. will come out of the COVID experience in which, you know, yeah, yeah. people oh, exactly. have had to restructure their relationship to work and they've, during that restructuring, have discovered, um, you know, just how important it is to connect to other things, especially community-centric, yeah, to slow down yeah. and to maybe realise that they don't um, have to physically be um, where their job is located, that they can work remotely, that maybe they yeah. can cut out commuting. Like that's going to um, reclaim a lot of hours in the day for some people when you remove the mm-hmm. commuting aspect and the physically sitting yeah. in a chair in an office aspect and, you know, maybe working from home or working, you know, um, sort of a less structured mm-hmm. work day. Yeah. So I'm interested in, like, a, uh, we, we, we know of one 
you know, um, potential site in Glengarland, which is going to be there's going to be a local survey done of of, of the to, to gauge the interest and to see what uh, might develop from that, and using the the community interest to to drive what kind of garden it you know it, what might evolve, mm-hmm. and there you know and there will be some support there you know from from existing infrastructure projects that the government's putting in, and I know in uh, in other areas the developers are very interested in. Um, we've had contact with people like that at Gin and Dairy. Yes, I was just going to mention them, and I'm thinking that's probably you know the type of mindset that you're getting in new developments. Yeah. So we've been consulting, well, not in, in the sense of being, we've been involved in the, some of the developments out there. So um, it's interesting and we'll be, you know, interested to see how it goes forward. But again, you know, um, important things now are, you know, the cost, the setup costs. And um, it's, it's quite challenging. Mm-hmm. And then the ongoing um, uh, sort of the human, the human costs. The ongoing human cost of getting people to organise to develop because it's good. Really, it takes quite a considerable degree of you know amount of time and effort to to run these things and get them organised. Well, this is primarily what you've been doing, isn't it, Peter? You've been sort of the um, the project manager for a lot of the admin stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, uh, as I hinted, we're we're okay. slightly getting uh, on a bit, and it's getting <laughs> the demands of our time as as retirees. Mm-hmm. You know, with family, child minding, and as mm-hmm. I heard Keith mention that he doesn't he, he he doesn't do so much gardening or didn't do mm-hmm. until the the COVID lockdown mm-hmm. came. And I'm we're finding that we're finding it less and less time available mm-hmm. to do these things. But it's something that we've we've got a, at the moment, like our organisation, we've got a good crew. We know we're and we're trying hard to keep you know over 300, 400 gardeners happy. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it bodes well because you've just you've just let us know um, how popular the community gardens are. That you're full. That there's a quite a large waiting list to get an allotment, and you know there's obviously lots and lots of keen people. So maybe they just need to know that that you need help. That that you are looking for people to fill certain roles within your organisation. <coughs> yeah. And we, it's, so it's, it's quite a challenge at the moment anyway, but that's not to be negative about mm-hmm. things. Things are going pretty well. We've had a quite a horrendous uh, sort of growing season with the bushfires, mm-hmm. the heat, the, heat uh, the drought and the COVID. It's been quite difficult for gardeners, but most of them have, you know, rebounded and are, are really back into, you know, getting their gardens going again. Mm. And, you know, I think people maybe have been learning that um, that it might be um, better to make different sorts of gardens. You know, like the, the way that people are designing gardens now has changed a lot too, you know, as we yeah. have climate change and we need to adjust and we, yeah. we're learning, yeah. um, you know, what's thriving and what's not. And, um, yeah. you know, having uh, that knowledge is helping people plant more resilient gardens. Yeah. And water will be, you know, the the water will be, a, a, you know, uh, right across the country will be an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 and that's going to be, we manage it fairly well at the moment, but mm. the costs will go up. It'll become more expensive to run your gardens. Mm. On our model that we are existing, we're running at the moment, it'll become more and more expensive. Mm. And, um, you know, people will make decisions based on, uh, you know, on their family budgets. Mm-hmm. 
Why well, I noticed myself from choosing what to plant in my garden, um, you know, what was sustainable for me to plant or what was going to cost me five times more to grow than it was to go down to the farmer's market yeah. and buy. <laughs> so, you know, that was, that was also for me, it was it's a very major decision in what I planted. And gardening is just a, cheap, a very cheap hobby. Mm-hmm. By the time, you know, you, you've done your, your Bunnings run for, mm-hmm. for cow manure and <laughs> mushroom compost, etc. You know, it, it mounts up over the over the uh, over the time. Yeah, I have been known to chase horses down the road when I see them pooping in my suburb. <laughs> but we've got some very, as Keith will sort of obviously agree with, we've got some very good gardeners who share their expertise. Uh, there's always within a garden. There's always people with spare seedlings that they're growing. There are people that know exactly when to to do their plantings. They uh, they're well in advance of everybody else. And you know, like myself, I'm always behind. I'm always playing catch up, mm-hmm. but watching very carefully what they're doing so you can. You know, you can do that catch up. Mm. So I, I know, Peter, you mentioned that you, you've got another engagement and you're going to have to leave us a little early. Yeah, yeah. Um, how do people get in touch with you if they want to get involved and, you know, and yeah. step up and maybe fill some of the roles that you're looking for yeah. and just uh, get look, more information? Where would they go to find that? Well, of course, we've got a Facebook page. We've got a website, although the website's under reconstruction. That's, that's the meeting I'm going to next mm-hmm. is to, to start developing you know, re, uh, redeveloping our, our website. But we do have a website which gives uh, quite a deal of information uh, for, pers- for prospective gardeners. And I think that would be a good place to start. Also, and Facebook li- is a lively uh, addition mm-hmm. to our sort of uh, media, media stuff. And then, of course, once um, some of the restrictions are, are, are lifted, then you'll be letting people know when they can come and yes. view some Look, of the gardens. Through the, through the website, you can't, <laughs> we have a gardens coordinator. And, you know, through a, a simple email approach, you can, you'll get in contact with us and we'll respond and organise things. Okay, well, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Peter, for joining us oh, and um, sharing about, wish we could have you on a bit longer and, and perhaps we can have you on again in the near future. I love, very happy to. Very yeah, happy. And we've got a- We've got you know some very some good expertise to, that we can share with you too, in our from amongst our gardens. Well, thank you, and that was Peter Waddell with Canberra Organic Growers. So uh, thank you for joining us, Peter. And we'll pop thank back. You. Thank you, and we'll pop back to Keith. And uh, you know, Peter started to touch on some of these ideas about you know water consumption for gardens being an issue. Now, the idea of um, planting and planning your verge garden might be able to alleviate some of that. Um, water wasted issue. I know that they uh, can certainly ameliorate some of the urban heat island effect and um, can potentially be um, designed in such a way that it's conserving water. Yeah, you, there's a lot you can do to conserve water by how you design your garden and how you manage that garden. So the more organic matter you can get into the soil, and that's either through compost or using, um, if you've got a native, you know, some people if they haven't got uh, food gardens, they may have native grasses or something. And and the, a lot of those have what's called mycorrhizal associations with fungi. And that can actually increase the amount of carbon in the soil enormously. And if the more carbon you have in the soil, the more water the soil can hold. So that when it does rain, your soil acts like a reservoir. And you can garden so that um, if you put lots of compost in, again, your compost acts like a water reservoir. So that's one way of cutting down on your, um, on your water costs. The other way is how you water. 
Now, if you just go out and sprinkle the top of the ground every couple of days or depending on the weather, maybe every day, that's a really inefficient use of water. What you need is a system of deep watering. So you only water every... Uh, and drippers are the obvious way to do this. Now, I know a lot of people don't like drippers because when people, a lot of people water, they like to see water going everywhere. Well, that's a really inefficient way of doing it, especially with sprays, because with sprays, you're getting a lot of water evaporating before the water even hits the soil. Mm. Um, so what you need to do is think very carefully about how you're using your water in your garden. So um, the first step is lots and lots of carbon into the soil. Um, and that has other benefits as well. Of course, if you can, if you're dragging carbon out of the out of the atmosphere back into the soil, that sort of helps. Of well, in in a garden, it's got, not going. It's a small amount, so it doesn't help very much. If it's a large area of farmland, it makes a huge difference to the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. Or if it's a large movement of small gardens. <laughs> That's right. That's another way of looking at it. That's right. Yeah, so this this carbon into the soil. I know in chemical sort of. Uh, chemical circles, carbon-based things are called organic. Is this where organic comes from? Uh, the original idea of orga- organic, uh, I should, uh, uh, when I listened to Peter talking to me, I should have mentioned that uh, City Farm is also always organic gardening. Mm-hmm. The original idea, in English anyway, it was first, the, the term organic was first used by a guy called Lord Northbourne in 1940. He wrote a book called Look to the Land. And the idea they were trying to get across is that you need to treat your garden as a living system. Now, they didn't use it. We, we would say uh, we'll be talking about ecosystems in our, now, but in those days they didn't, they didn't use the word ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So they needed to think of a word. How can, we, how can we describe a garden as a living system where all the different parts of these the different things that live in the garden interact with one another and in very complex ways. So it's really a very complex interaction of living living things. Um, So they said, well, it's a living thing. It's organic. That's where the organic name came Mm -hmm. from. It, It means you're talking about a living system and organic gardening is about being aware at all times, well, as much as you can, about Whatever you do in your garden, how does that cascade through the rest of the ecosystem that is your garden? Or, and also, you need to think about the ecosystem within which your garden is embedded, mm-hmm. the ecosystems, the landscape. Or if you're a farmer, because originally Lord Northbourne was talking about farms, but you know, mm-hmm. gardens are just small farms. Um, so um, you need to think about uh, how does all, all this how does the ecosystem of your broader landscape, how is it impacted by what you're doing in your garden? Mm. And this is why there's the emphasis on using... uh, There's all sorts of funny words people use to describe it, uh, organic methods, natural methods, all those sorts of things. What what the idea we're trying to get across is that um, you're not... You're trying not to, to... interfere too much with uh, the functioning of the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So we don't use soluble salt fertilisers. And the reason we don't use soluble salt fertilisers is, well, there's several reasons, but one of the reasons is they're soluble. That's, mm-hmm. And plants need nutrients in a soluble form to, be extra- to extract them from the soil. Mm-hmm. But 
the problem comes is a lot of urban gardens way over water. So they they put their soluble salt fertilizer, and by soluble salts I mean sulfate of ammonia or um, superphosphate, those sorts of like things. Like dynamic and, lifter, that sort of stuff? No, not so much dynamic okay. lifter. That's basically composted chutpah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, but, but all those things can be overdone. So what happens is you mm-hmm. overwater and it all runs into stormwater. Then it goes, and in our case, it ends up either in Lake Burley Griffin or Lake Ginandera or wherever, and then we get these algal blooms um, because it's, we've supplied so many nutrients to the waterways, which are natu- our waterways are naturally low-nutrient waterways, and then you pump them full of nutrients, and then you get blue-green blue, algae mm-hmm. outbreaks all over. So a lot of that problem is caused by gardeners using soluble salts as fertilisers. So you need to think about how can you can contain those nutrients within your garden and not spread them, you know, not spread them all over the countryside. Um, so that's another way of thinking about um, how do you how do you treat your garden in such a way it doesn't interfere with the greater ecosystem that it, in which it's embedded, but also how is your ecosystem, which is your garden, how is it working? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the problems with insecticides is that if you let a, uh, a garden get into a balance, you've, you've got predator insects, parasitic insects, which will keep your insects that we call pests, and only gardeners call them pests, insects that cause us problem in the garden. But if you keep them in balance, um, then they'll all uh, look after each other. Well, they won't look after; they'll eat one another, and they'll 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 keep their populations more or less in balance. So they'll basically self-manage your your garden in that exactly. way. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Um, now, if you you come along with a spray, uh, whether it's organically certified or not, that's another trap organic gardeners walk into: is that you can cause enormous amounts of damage into your ecosystem of your garden by using organic sprays, just as much damage as using inorganic sprays. So it's how you use how you use those organic sprays is really important. So if you've got, say, an outbreak of aphids, which everyone gets aphids in early spring, you spray them with uh, pyrethrum, that'll kill most most of the aphids, but it also kills any predator insects that are mm-hmm. there. And the so predator praying insects, mantis and that sort of thing. That's right. You know, ladybirds, mm-hmm. late-swing larvae, all those sorts of things. So the predator insects... Uh, usually have a much slower life cycle, uh, not so many generations per year as, say, things like aphids. So the aphids have... The aphids can clone themselves. It's called parthenogenesis. So they can can pop out a a live copy of themselves every day. So that means that you get this... Once you've sprayed them, you won't kill everything. You never do. Uh, Once you've sprayed them, then you'll get this enormous population explosion of aphids but you've killed off all the predators that you, normally you would use to keep them under control. So what you've done is create a rod for your own back. Yeah, and this is, I think, that saying, as in the micro, so in the macro. I mean, we've got the same problem in, in large mammals with our apex predators getting um, yep. reduced in number and then you've got population explosion of, of grazing animals that are you know, impacting you know, grazing land for farmers and all sorts of issues and, uh, you know, and we're wondering why. And then you, you've just removed... I, mean, I was living in, in, in Canada for many years and, um, you know, you'd have these massive explosion in the deer population because you didn't have the apex predators, um, you know, in large yeah. enough numbers to hunt them and control them. 
And in places, mm-hmm. they're trying to bring back the apex predators like the wolves and things mm-hmm. with, with, with some certain amount of resistance from farmers, I must say, but um, to try and fix up that balance. And one of the things I like about gardening is the way that I run various gardening courses for CIT Solutions and various other people. Uh, but the nice thing about gardening, it is a nice, gentle way of getting people to think about the ecosystem because a lot of uh, and how they interact with nature. Because a lot of people have become sort of disconnected with nature; they don't really make a connection with it. Gardening is a nice, gentle way because uh, of getting reintroduced back into contact with nature because you're dealing with it. Uh, Your garden is a small ecosystem which you can then start to learn how does it work, uh, what impact, you you know, if you do something in a particular garden, how does it cascade through the rest of the garden? Mm. Uh, And it's really, um, it's a useful way of reconnecting people back to nature because one of the things we're interested in a city farm is more sustainable living. And from the way, you know, sustainable, sustainability is one of those words that means different things to different people. But um, basically, we're thinking of sustainable living as something where uh, living in such a way that you don't destroy the ecosystem upon which you depend. So it's a do no now, harm philosophy. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what we're the way I see the importance of gardening and people learning how to garden is that it gives them a direct contact so they start to... It's it's one thing to read a book about all this stuff and understand ecosystems and how they function. It's quite another to actually say, right, oh, there's your patch patch of land, you grow things, you create your own ecosystem and you make it work. That's That's much more direct... And that way you can start to get people to really think more deeply about the impact of our whole society, of the way our whole society functions and its impact on the ecosystem which supports us. So I see it as a nice, gardening is a nice soft way of getting people introduced to these concepts without sort of belting them around the ears with all sorts of, um, you know, um, all sorts of philosophy and things. It's, it's just really very practical and... Um, that's one of the reasons, one of the things we're trying to achieve at the Canberra City Farm, to introduce people to these concepts, how they can live more sustainably or, you know, with a lighter lighter touch on the environment. Yeah, now that's pretty interesting. You've, you've, I guess that's in a sort of individual sense and it's it's helping to connect individuals with the, the broader sort of biological community. Now, there's another disconnect that we have um which is from our own community. We're in this crisis of loneliness, and we've uh, we've sort of forgotten how to self-organise an awful lot of things. And I'm sure that Canberra City Farms also uh, connecting people more with that. We're we're trying to. Um, we also had to abide by the rules, of course. So we were limited on how many people we could have out there. But we've got twenty thousand uh, square metres, so we we could actually have quite a number of people out there. Um, it has caused a bit of havoc with the courses we run. Uh, we've started, we've transferred some of those to Zoom, but there are some courses where you do have to have close contact with people. Like um, I, I often run a soils course, so and one of the things about soils is that um, because we run a poor man's soils course, we don't have lots of flash equipment. So 
we have to use more sort of feeling, um, uh, more sort of, uh, well, more uh, systems that are more in line with what an ordinary gardener can do. So when you ask people, you try and teach people about the texture of soils and how textures relate and how the difference between texture and structure, then the way to do it is you've got to... You, I, invite everyone to bring soils from their own home so they can feel the difference. So you have to have that close contact where people feel this lump of soil and then they take a lump of soil from somebody else and feel that so you can feel all the differences. And that way you get you, you sort of get an intuitive feel for different sorts of soils. Those sorts of things we couldn't really do during the, the lock-up. But we all, we, throughout the whole of the COVID thing, we've always had volunteers out there and yeah, as you said, some people got very lonely in this uh, in the lockdown, and it's a place. It's a social place. We've got pizza oven out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can make pizzas. Although I suspect I haven't used it too much in the in, during the, the lockdown. But we always for um, working bees, someone brings along some food, and we have a sit around and have a cup of tea and a bit of a chat about things in general, or maybe about the city farm or not necessarily could be about anything. Mm. Well, now you've Um, talked about pizza. You know, pizza, everyone's going to be running out there. Now you've said you've got a pizza oven. (laughs) We build it ourselves. It's a a lot of bad pizza oven, I must say. Um, Really churns out nice pizzas. Uh, if you know how to make yeah. features. But, you know, I, as you describe with this, you know, the social distancing requirements, I mean, garden, gardening is the perfect thing you can do alone yet together. I mean, if you yeah. live in a community where you're on a, say you're on a suburban street and you're all on your particular block where your house is and you're out the front doing your garden and your neighbours out the front doing their garden, you're more than social distancing, but you can still talk to each other and share ideas and admire each other's plants and um, get jealous of why their roses look better than yours. <laughs> I mean, and, and, you know, kids for the first time are putting their hands in soil. They're, they're actually That's understanding wrong. where their food comes from. It's not from a, a plastic package in a supermarket. It, it starts as a small seed and then it grows and then it transforms. And then when it's ready to harvest, it comes out of their garden and it goes into their kitchen and gets washed and prepared as a meal. Yeah, and I think, I think particularly that you raised an important point about kids. Mm-hmm. Kids in garden. Um, you know, they're our new generation. So they're the ones we really need to... The younger people are the ones we need to focus on. One of the problems with a lot of gardening clubs, a lot of people who sort of are connected with the environment but are in gardening clubs, is that they're getting older and older and older and we're not getting many new people coming through. Um, now, there is a movement for a lot of new uh, gardens are being built in schools. And that's excellent. And, you know, there's things like Stephanie Alexander and all those sort of garden, uh, that garden well, relates gardening to food. And um, I've been involved in a couple of programs where we've had kids where we, there was a chef, uh, I was the gardener, and then, then there was the chef who did the cooking. So we took kids from, take them through the garden so they can taste things, smell things, tell us about what they like to eat. And then you'd collect stuff from the garden and then the chef would then create some food and then they'll go through the process of eating it. So you go through the whole process. And for little kids, of course, you've got to do that fairly quickly, otherwise they get bored or distracted. Mm. But it's doable. And I think the more that we can involve children, particularly school kids, um, the better. 
and um, you know, just, even if it's just taking your grandkids or your kids to to your allotment and having a bit of a dig, and they might not do anything particularly useful, but they can have a dig and they can play and they can get to get to see things and know things. Because so, some of the things we've run with school kids, some school kids don't know, well, some adults don't know what the you know, what a tomato bush looks like. Hmm. Or you know what a potato what a potato um, plant looks like. Um, they see them in shops, but they only see the bit they eat. They don't see the rest of the plant. So hmm. there's a whole lot of education that needs to go on there. So and that's really about disconnecting people back to the environment upon which they descend, uh, depend for their existence. Yeah, and that's the thing we've talked about a few times this morning is that piece of disconnect you know we've had so much disconnect from what you consider the natural order of things you know how um, we're supposed to live as as human beings on the planet we've become human doings and (laughs) we um you know we we have either forgotten or have never experienced um you know the connection to a full life cycle of something and you know i was horrified when i learned in in north america in a lot of the built-up urban areas that kids didn't know that milk came from cows they thought it just came out of this carton you bought in the supermarket they had no idea there was an animal involved yeah. so you know that was horrifying to me and I realized okay if you've never been exposed to it of course you wouldn't know and you um, you know you don't have any green space you're in a concrete urban jungle and maybe there's a couple of trees and that's about it so your experience of of nature and the land is, is really restricted so you know having this opportunity like what what you're doing which is people can you know experience the, the whole process they can get involved they can learn how to do it for themselves they can share they can make new friends so you know it's it's such a i mean the people say that sometimes it's not actually about plants it's about people well mm. that's exactly right but that's uh, Cogs in particular, but also city farm. It, it's about people. People lie at the core of this of this whole process, because you know it's it's the people that affect the environment, There's, and um, it's also the people's understanding which will solve all these pro- solve these problems. So mm. that's where we've got, that's where we've got to start. So mm. it's very much a social sort of uh, a social movement or a social exercise, rather than. It's, it's partly about growing food, growing your own food, growing better quality food than you can buy in a shop. But at the base of it, I think, is about people. That's what it's about. Mm. And, um, that, well, that's, that's our emphasis also at the city farm. That's how we're approaching it. So, um, you know, we have lots of activities for people to, to do things because people love to come along and do little workshops and learn things like, you know, we ran how to clone mushrooms, we ran mushroom workshops. We got lots of people come along like to learn how to clone mushrooms. Now, they may not go home and clone their own mushrooms and grow them in the backyard, but, you know, they've had, they've had contact. They understand how the system works now. Hmm. How, how you can produce mushrooms, say. And uh, yeah, another thing is lactobacillus brew. We make lots of lactobacillus brews, and you can use. Is that kombucha? That's the acetic acid thing. Okay. Uh, that's a slightly different process. Lactobacillus is. Um, we use bakashi, if you've ever used a bakashi bucket. Okay, yeah. Uh, the base of, base of that is lactobacillus. You can use it for composting. Mm-hmm. You can use it for cleaning. You can use it for dealing with smelly material. Lactobacillus are amazing things. Um, and we show people how to brew those, how to use them, that sort of thing. 
Um, so there's all sort now some of them will probably never do it at home, but that's fine. They've gone through the process. They now understand what their role is in the environment, what the lactobacillus role is in the environment and how important it is. Um, that's the main thing. They've had a bit of hands-on stuff. And they might then go away for you know years and years and never touch it again. But the, the knowledge is still there and the understanding is still there. And that's the important part. Yeah. And, you know, with all of these things that we've talked about, about creating these spaces in our communities and, you know, connecting with our neighbours, um, there's a lovely um, story. I was reading about a lady in Melbourne who turned her verge into a very um, thriving vegetable garden. And what she found just by doing that, she said um, she noticed community benefits immediately, that way more people were stopping to chat with her when they saw her out there doing this, that she met, like you said, met more people in her neighbourhood, met more people that she didn't even know lived in her area and people started sharing plant knowledge. And she met a lot of um, older immigrants who had come to the country um, sort of post-Second World War who um, had thought of verge gardening as... um, uh, sort of a normal normal way of gardening that they were the original verge gardeners they used to uh, plant vegetables in that area and um, take advantage of that green space and um, you know and then that was a big part of their urban food source so she learned a lot of these people in her neighborhood who were um, older community members who had been verge gardening before it was a thing <laughs> yeah that's uh, yeah that's right and um, the um I guess in some ways, a long time ago, um, this idea of a verge where you weren't allowed to do things on was was a bit foreign. Uh, It's entirely foreign. Um, So um, the another important part, as you just mentioned, these people from uh, you know from different communities, um, they often when they come here, they feel very very isolated. And a, a community garden or city farm or those sorts of setups or just your verge gardening can help connect them much more quickly with the with the local communities that they're now in. And uh, I think I think particularly Cogs Gardens and City Farm have a very useful role to play there. And um, so we've got some plots set aside for for refugee groups and uh, people like that at the city farm where they can... Because quite often they they have a difficult time when they get here because they go to the shops mm. and there's none of the food that they're, ever, that they're used mm. to eating is on sale. It's not grown here. So, but they mm. can still, you know, it still grows here, but nobody grows it commercially. Um, so it gives them the opportunity for it to grow their own stuff in their own style, their own type of food. And... Um, and that sort of helps connect them to the community. Mm. And that, that saying too was that um, existing growers encourage new growers. So yes. that just seeing somebody doing it gives you the you know inspiration or the passion to do it yourself. Yeah, yeah, that's, I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Like one, one of the other benefits to verge gardening, because like, you know, we were supposed to be doing a show mostly on verge gardening, so I shouldn't just, it's really easy to get talk to you about lots of other wonderful things, Keith, um, is that it's a habitat creation too. Like that's one of the benefits of well, verge gardens as we've developed areas and cut wildlife off from um, you know, shelter and from sources of food, that verge gardening can actually reopen nature corridors for wildlife. That's right. That's really important. And it's important in your ordinary back, in your backyard as well. You should always, yeah, you should, 
what you're trying to do is to, with gardens is well what I'm trying to do with gardens is to create a very diverse habitat so you need you need lots of different plants you need plants which flower all year round for your little birds you need plants that are bushy that they can hide from the currawongs and they don't get eaten by the currawongs um, and what you're trying to do is create as diverse a a diverse environment as you possibly can. In that way, if you create habitat, things will come. Um, and as you said, those those corridors uh, for for animals to move down uh, are really important. Now, one of the problems with cities is that uh, you know a lot of the trees get chopped down, and um, your wildlife just really can't exist in that situation. But in Canberra I think we're fairly lucky in that there's a lot more trees and things a lot more uh, sort of different different levels of vegetation levels of vegetation than was here probably a long time ago when it was a sheep paddock. So in some ways there may well be more birds of, of some sorts anyway than there ever were in the past. So, But um, I think the, the point you made about the having wildlife corridors, and if you could do that with bird gardening, that would be great. Yeah, um, and just creating also um, additional food sources for our pollinators. And, that's uh, right. You know, there's and been a huge movement for supporting the bees, of course, and making bee-friendly gardens. We had some wonderful folks on here a month or so ago. Uh, but you know, there's another opportunity too with the verge gardens to um, creating more food sources for our pollinators. And particularly with native plants, I've, I'm just looking out my my window where we've got the grevillea. And it's a, it's a crappy-looking old grevillea, but it produces huge amounts of flowers, and it's and they pre, they're very nectar-rich. So it's always covered in birds of all, all sorts of descriptions. And um, a lot of native, you know, native birds are adapted to native plants. So if you have native plants, you'll also attract a lot of native birds. You know, things like we've got, we get lots of silver eyes, and silver eyes are really good pest controllers. Uh, we get lots of um, saundules and uh, wattle birds and heaps and heaps of birds, and they all eat these flowers on this, this old grevillea that I've got out the front. Um, so those native plants are really useful to have in your garden. And so if you've got a, maybe your soil's quite harsh in that area or it's, um, uh, you know, you've got that um, particularly unsheltered area where maybe some of the plants aren't going to do so well, so maybe creating a native verge rather than a food production verge might be an idea. I think that could be very, very useful, yes. Um, native plants, you know there's the Native Plant Society here, which have uh, done a lot of work on native plants, and there's a lot of information about native plants that are suitable for the Canberra region or that are just indigenous to here. So sort of cool, cool climate natives, right, that, that do better in our climate. Yeah, yeah. The um, yeah, there's there's a huge range of plants which will grow really well in our environment here, and the I think they call Australian Native Plant Society. And in fact, there's there's um, also um, nurseries out of Pialago that specialise in native plants that grow here. So um, that's another good way of doing your verge garden. Now, there is a bit of a restriction with verge gardens here where you're not supposed to go any higher than 50, uh, 50 centimetres, but still you can grow 
Now, like, for instance, grevilleas that you can go, um, the low-lying, I've got also got a low grevillea out the mm. front, which grows about oh, probably 10, 15 centimetres high. But yeah, I, very, I have a few of them as well. I know the one you mean. They're wonderful, wonderful plants. Yeah, so, and they produce lots of flowers as well. Yeah. So there are lots of native plants you can grow in a birch garden and attract the, the, the native wildlife mm. around here. Mm. So it's really important, I think, for all gardens, you should not just think of, even if it's a food garden, don't think of it just as a food garden. It has to have, all food gardens should have flowers. Mm. Flowers to attract pollinators, flowers to attract beneficial insects. And potentially, like I know in some of our um, our harsh summer climates, some of the Mediterranean plants do really well, so Mediterranean herbs and that sort of thing can actually yep, thrive. they do extremely well here. Yeah. Um, so all those Mediterranean-type plants mm. do well. And in fact, it's really when you're designing your garden, it's important to think about the climate. What sort of... You, you can grow anything here, but... Um, some things will require a huge amount of work and a lot of money mm-hmm. to keep them alive and other things will just thrive out there and you don't have to worry about mm-hmm. them. So it's a good idea to do your homework and think about where did these things come from. A lot of our plants are South African as well, so um, with a similar sort of climate to here. So when you're planting plants, do a bit of homework, look up where did that plant evolve because that will tell you the conditions it requires. And and if it's something similar to here, then you can be pretty sure and uh, and not only think about the climate but also the soil type. Um, And if that sort of matches our our conditions here, then it's going to grow pretty well here Mm. and it won't be very hard to grow. Mm. Um, So that's um, choosing the appropriate plants for our climate and our soils is really important. It makes life ever so much easier and it makes your garden much more successful. Mm. And there was some advice with planting verges that you look at the permanent things or the things you can't change, like where the sun's coming from the locations right. of buildings that are going to be shading the area maybe or blocking the sun you know yeah. if you can't do a raised bed then what sort of soil have you got there how yeah. can you transform that um, yes. so 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 sort of like you said the preparation is as much of a part as the growing oh the preparation is probably more important than the growing if you could do the preparation right then you're okay. If you never do the pre- preparation right, no matter what you got, what mm-hmm. you're planting, it's going to struggle, mm-hmm. and it's always going to look, you know, yeah. so-so. And I think the but advice was start small and grow incrementally. Yeah, that's that's because quite often mm-hmm. people t- take off, you know, bite off more than mm-hmm. they can chew, and then when that happens, you just think, oh, it's too hard, and just give up, and you end up with a mess. So yes, I think that's important that you. And the other thing that's important, if you do have a big area that you're trying to deal with, is put it into into bite-sized chunks, mm, yeah. so that you so you don't get overwhelmed. So you do one little bit, and say right, you've got that under control. Then you move on to the next bit. Mm. Try and if you try and do it all at once, it's just too hard. Yeah. And some other things I think that um, you and Peter had touched on earlier, like for instance with the plant selection, if it's in a public area and there might be some foot traffic through there, like your postie delivering mail, that sort of thing, um, to think about um, plants that aren't thorny or spiky, that That's right. you know, are not going to injure pedestrians, um, yes. that also you've got nothing with um, a very um, aggressive root system that might lift 
pavers or might damage footpaths and, and um, start causing some um, tripping hazards through doing that. And yeah. also, um, if you're on your nature strip there, uh, on your verge, there's possibly underground cables and other services running along there, which might yeah. be a safety issue. I mean, we've seen a lot of adverts lately on TV of, you know, about checking before you dig. <laughs> so yeah. it's probably well, more actually, likely to have stuff along your verge. Yeah, mm. it, in fact, it, it's really important. If you mm. are going to dig any significant hole, there's a dial before you dig, which doesn't cost you anything. Mm. You just uh, register for that, and they'll send you the copies of all the services. You, you, get, you have to give them your address or your block mm. number, and they'll send you a copy of all a uh, copy of all the maps with all the services on it, so you know exactly where things are. Um, so that's important if you're going to do digging uh, because you can get yourself into all sorts of strife if you start digging up pipes. Yes, and you know, not just for your neighbours but for your personal safety too. Oh, yes, yes, that's right. Um, so, um, yeah, those things are important. Um, there are, as, for a lot of this stuff, there's a, the, the actual guidelines, if you just go into ca- Access Canberra, a lot of this stuff is all listed. Wonderful. In the guidelines, and it's. Uh, I'd I suggest anyone who wants to do verge gardening, even if you're one of the people who don't really follow the rules, but at least know what the rules are, um, have a look. At just you can download it as a PDF file, um, and there's also a similar one for community gardens too. If you want to set up a community garden, there's also another very good publication put out by the ACT government about um, uh, the things you need to do about. Uh, setting up a community garden. Mm. And another another source of information are people who don't live in the ACT but maybe live in New South Wales or anywhere else. Um, there's the Australian City Farms and Community Gardens Network, which has an excellent website which um, lists how do you go, gives all sorts of really useful hints on how do you go about setting up a community garden? What's the process you go through? All that consultation mm-hmm. process we talked about before. How does all that work? Um, and that's a really useful website. The easiest way to find it is just put it's Australian Community Garden Network. So it's a oh sorry Australian Community Gardens and City uh, Australian City Farms and Community Gardens. Australia, Australian City Farms and Community Gardens. Network. Network, okay. So A-C-F, well... <laughs> A-C-F-C-G. Take the first letter of each of those words. <laughs> yeah, Scotty's got it all written down there. He's been writing, yeah, scribbling yeah, away. And it'll <laughs> pop up straight away. Yeah. Beautiful. But that's a really useful website for people wanting to get involved in community gardens. And it'll also have stuff about verge gardening on that as well. But Because, as you said, there's different rules and different councils, and so you've got to... In the end, you've got to negotiate with your local council. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately, you know, the reason for doing any of this, right, is um, to make us happier, healthier humans, right? That's right. Um, it is, well, there's happier, healthier humans and also that so we don't so much environmental damage as we are causing at the moment. Mm-hmm. So there's, uh, and I guess that's, that comes to the healthier, happier because all these things are connected. Yeah, we're we're part of people forget that we're part of the environment. We're part of the ecosystem as well, uh, just as much as uh, you know kangaroos and all those sorts of things. Um, so um, we we yes, we're all interacting, and if 
um, if it's working well, we're going to be happier and healthier. And it creates responsibility too. I think you tend to care about things once you feel responsible for them. So, um, you know, the responsibility of nurturing, of, of designing, planting and nurturing a garden and then harvesting from a garden. You know, I think for, for some people that have not had that experience before, it, it's quite transformative, you know, to, to be part of something's life cycle. Yeah, that's right. It gets us away from this feeling that the world revolves around us, um, when in fact it doesn't. Um, So, uh, yeah, all all those things, I think, are positive things that can come out of just out of gardening. It comes out of gardening because you're connecting yourself with nature, and I think that's the important lesson of of all this stuff and... Mm -hmm. And that's a message we're yeah. trying to get across in the city farm. Yeah. And there's been so many like lovely stories I was reading just in preparation for today's interview. And one was um, a community in Melbourne that um, became very, very, um, you know, connected through their verge gardens. And they actually um, rerouted all their front down pipes so they could water theirs and each other's verge gardens. <laughs> So oh, I thought, well, you know, you've got this, you know, again, this amazing community spirit that's being generated and, um, you know, so sort of you become rather selfless about it. It's, you know, it's the, the, what's the greater good in, in all mm, of this. Yeah, on that note, I really liked the one where they would plant the nature strips out with food and yes. anyone who walked along mm-hmm. could just take some. I mean, they did, some, yeah. they did very much encourage it to be yeah. within the neighbourhood, but, you yeah. know, if someone needed a feed, go yeah. for it. Yeah. And they asked gardeners felt about that and they said, you know, there's always going to be some people that take more than their fair share or, you know, people who aren't respectful. But it's it's overall, it's quite minimal. And people, once they understand the system, um, treat it with respect. And, you know, I think it went so far as we've got a picture on our Facebook page for today's interview where there's a raised herb planter and someone's put up a sign saying, you know, pick some herbs for dinner. And they've even put up a a little pair of um, plant snips so that you can cut (laughs) off your own parsley or whatever and take it home for dinner. That's it. I think they said we read find stealing as contributing to the community. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, our attitude when I was in Cogs was if people came and pinched food, that's fine. They probably needed it. Mm. it, it the only thing that used to upset us was when they just, uh, it was vandalism, where they just destroyed things. Yeah. But if people need the food, fine. Don't, yeah, yeah that, that's okay. Plenty more where that came from. Yes. Yeah, you just grow a new bit next door, so a bit more next year. <laughs> yeah. So we're getting close to winding up. Scotty, was there anything else you wanted to chat to Keith about? There's tons, but we don't have time. No, I've got 10 pages in front of me that we didn't even touch, but that means we have to get you back on later, Keith. Okay, well, that's okay. Okay, well, it was good to chat to you. Wonderful. So if um, folks want to get in touch, I know you've got a Facebook page and a website. Well, um, probably if they want to get in touch, the best way is you, you, you can either go through the Facebook page or you can just send an email to Canberra City Farm, or one word, at gmail.com. And just a heading about, you know, whatever you want to talk about. Maybe if you're, you talk, want to talk about market gardens, just put market garden or, you know, whatever the subject is. Mm. And that will get to Vanessa, our, our secretary, and she will par, par, pass it off to whoever's the appropriate person. If you want to get an allotment garden, you go through the same process. And, you know, to let people know, you also do um, a lot of wonderful courses out there. Like we're hoping to have Canberra Seed Savers on next week and you had um, Ariane McVeigh from Canberra Seed Savers just teaching a course there recently. 
Yeah, Ariane did a Zoom. She did our first Zoom one because we were experimenting a bit with Zoom mm-hmm. with courses. So, yes, because uh, Ariane used to be part of the City Farm as well. That's where SpeedSavers actually started. And, um, yes, uh, and um, Ariane's a good example of putting things out on the verge mm-hmm. and letting people take, because she, she used to produce lots of seedlings and, and get rid of them that way. By mm. putting them out in the verge, and people who needed them would take them, and some would pay, and some wouldn't pay. No, that's wonderful. Just to, again, you know, just more people are going to be inspired by seeing other people doing this. So this, yeah, this is how it's going so. to work. It's wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Keith. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, and I'm always keen to learn more about growing happy plants. So um, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Oh, and thank you very much for the opportunity to talk to you about it. Wonderful. So, uh, Scotty, any last oh, words? Oh, look, yeah. I think just one thing to note on, it's uh, partly an announcement on the uh, on the city farm side. Side of things, mm-hmm. I, I believe there's a, a potential for a, a cooperative to take over mm-hmm. the uh, the commercial kitchen out there. So, mm-hmm. if yeah, any- that, mm-hmm. that's right. Yeah, so if anyone's interested in being part of a part ownership of a commercial kitchen, then uh, yeah, get in touch with them as well. Sounds fabulous. Um, so you have um, been listening to Keith Coles this morning from Canberra City Farm, and earlier we had Peter Waddell from Canberra Organic Growers. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and Radio Behind the Lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A.org.au or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new appropriate economy. Thanks.